All right, today's my son's birthday, his first birthday. Judah Smith is 12 months old today, and uh, that means it's 12 months. Uh, 12 months ago, I was reeling, reeling. And it wasn't because I just witnessed the birth, right? In the, though that made me reel a little bit. It was the second time around, so it was a bit less full on. But it wasn't mainly that. It wasn't the fact that he wasn't breathing when he was born and he had to go to the NICU, because that happened before with India as well, so I was kind of used to that happening. What had me reeling was the fact that after I had accompanied him to the intensive care unit and they had stabilised him, I was on my way back to Renee's room to tell her that it was all good and he was going to be fine. I'd left her kind of being stitched up. Uh, won't go into any further than that, for your sake. And, uh, and I was on my way back, and I heard over the, the speaker system in the elevator that a code white had been called for her room. And because when I was a paramedic, I knew enough about codes to know that that wasn't good. And so I, I mean, I just sprang out of the elevator. I sprinted down the hallway. They had a locked door, and I just screamed over the thing to let me in or someone was going to die. All right? I don't know why they let me in. Um, I could have been a psychopath, but I, something in my voice told them that I needed to get in, so I, and I bolted down to her room, and it was just chock full of about 20 staff running and yelling. And I saw Renee's face was on its side looking towards me, but there was nothing going on. And uh, so I just got out of the way, um, and then once they disconnected her bed and started moving off to the theatre, I, I, I grabbed a hold of her and said, Judah's okay, Judah's okay, he's going to be okay. But she, there was nothing. And uh, so they wheeled her away and, and I, I, I asked what was going on and they said that she was bleeding really heavily and they couldn't stop it. And... My first thought was for a good friend of mine whose wife died that exact way. And he was left with an hour-old baby and no wife. So I got to praying pretty hard. And I spent the next few hours praying in a little room by myself. I called Suzanne, the kids minister here, and asked her to pray. Woke her up at four in the morning. I called my dad and Renee's mum and... And by God's grace, she was saved. She had to be resuscitated. She'd lost too much blood. She, she effectively was going to die. And they got the, the chief surgeon out of bed and got blood out from the city. She has a very red blood type. And, and they filled her back up with a, a couple of litres of blood. And, and she came good by God's grace. That was a year ago today. At no point during the 36 hours of labour, did I think that that's how things were going to end? I mean, even as someone who has a, had a friend who, for whom that had happened, I was confident that things were going to be much better this time around. That's what everyone said. Right? The, the first birth was hard, but this is the second birth. This is the easy one. It's like easy. It's like getting a can out of a machine, right? But it wasn't. And it wasn't because life is unpredictable. 
had as many uh, doctors and midwives and mothers that told us that this one was going to be fine, that this one was going to be okay, as confident as we were that God was going to sail us through this one because the last one sucked, life is unpredictable. You can never be sure what's going to happen next. And because life is unpredictable, God calls us over and over again through the Scriptures. Jesus calls us over and over again through his teaching. The church is called over and over again through the epistles to put their trust in God. It's like Ken said, people will let us down. Mothers will bleed out. Stuff happens, but God never fails us. What has this got to do with money? Let's read the text together. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1 to 6. Should be on the screen. If you want to read in your Bible, that's a good idea. You can pick one up at the end of your row. So just go and do that now if you want a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. You can take two or three, whatever you need, all right? Let's read. Ecclesiastes 11. If you've got a church Bible, it's 559. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Life is unpredictable. Our financial life is unpredictable, right? Everyone remember the global financial crisis? We got off easy, but it still affected us. Life is unpredictable. Our financial life is unpredictable. I learned this at a really young age. I remember growing up, I grew up in a, a family that was pretty comfortable financially, I'd say. We, we, I grew up with uh, two brothers and a sister, and my parents got married a little older, and so they were also very good savers and uh, hard workers, and so they had a bit of money together when they got married. They were able to buy a house, and, um, and so we grew up in a, in a house that had been paid for, and uh, I just remember life being not too challenging financially. I don't think we were wealthy, <clears throat> but we certainly didn't lack what we needed. And then things changed very dramatically when I turned eight years old because a, a month or two later my mum died. And, and things changed for us financially very quickly. So four small kids, one just a year old, my dad had to not work the same way that he did in the past not make the same kind of money he did in the past. He had to resign from his job and work a whole lot less so that he could raise four kids. And so I remember things changed for us financially very quickly, and even as an eight-year-old, I knew that that was the case. I knew that when I saw, you know, in the odd time that we went out for dinner and my dad wouldn't eat anything, he would just get something for us, and he'd say, oh, I'm, I'm okay. Or when he would go through my bag at the end of the week, 
I don't want to embarrass him, but when, I, when he went through my bag at the end of the week from school and would take out stuff that I hadn't eaten, and he would, ha- he would eat that. And he did all that because he didn't want us to be affected by the stress. See, for the first seven years, everything was pretty comfortable. Then things changed very dramatically, and that can happen not just because of a death, but because of a financial crisis, because of a a loss of work. Whatever it is, things can change very quickly for us when it comes to our finances. And Solomon knows this. And so he says... In verse 1 to 2, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. What he's doing here is actually giving financial advice. And what he's saying is you need to diversify your portfolio. I'm not joking, that's exactly what he's saying. You need to diversify your portfolio. You need to Cover all your bases. You need to invest in a few different things because you don't know what's going to happen. So Solomon was a man, we read in 1 Kings, that he had a fleet of merchant ships. Just one of the things that he owned. And he would send these merchant ships out with, uh, mostly with grain and they would return full of money if things went well. And that's what he's saying here. Cast your bread out on the waters. It's a picture language way of saying, send out your ships, send out your merchant ships, send out your your ships full of bread, full of grain, for you will find it after many days. It might take a while, but your investment, your long-term investment will reap rewards. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. That is, put them in seven or eight different ships. If you put them all in the one ship, it might go down in a storm. So put it in seven or eight ships. That's a better way of doing things. Diversify. For you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. See, he gets that our financial life is unpredictable. He gets that life itself is unpredictable. And so he says, when it comes to your finances, diversify. And the advice he's giving is coming in a greater context, which we'll see in a moment, where he, what the message really is, don't let the threats of this world. Don't let the unpredictability of this world make you cower, right? Make you afraid of investing. Don't let the threat of unpredictability, the threat of losing everything, make you not invest in things that matter. So let's keep reading. I'm going to show you how he does this. Verse 3 and 4. No, let's just do 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. What he's saying there is, you can't control things anyway. You might be tempted because things are predictable, because financial crashes happen, because you can't see what's going to be coming down the road. You might be tempted to try and control things. You might be tempted to have financial security. But he says, listen, security is a myth. Control is a myth. Can you control the weather? If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. You can't stop that happening. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, it's going to stay there. You can't stop it from falling. See, our nature, our human nature, is always to deify ourselves. 
That was Adam and Eve's first sin, to deify themselves. And so what we will invariably try to do when we are threatened by anything, by when we're, 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 we're tempted to fear what's coming, we will try to be gods ourselves. We'll try to control. Control the weather. Control things that are out of our control. The stock markets, right? The, the, the property prices. The, the spouse who may die. All of these things are out of our control. And what we tend to do out of fear is close up when we feel out of control. Close up. Harden our hearts. Refuse to take any step of faith. Refuse to trust in God who who controls all of these things and rely rather on ourselves, on our intelligence, on our wit, on our financial plan. And so he continues, verse 4 to 6, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. It's God who makes everything. It's God who controls everything. You don't know the way that he works. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your, grain, your, your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or the both alike will be good. What he's saying is this. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't control what will happen. God controls what will happen. You don't know his mind, but don't let that stop you from making the investment. Don't let that stop you from taking the step of faith. Withhold not. Don't fall into that trap of freezing up when things become uncertain. And so really, Solomon is calling his audience, he's calling them to take bold, courageous steps, to make bold, courageous investments. Now, the way this applies to our context this morning is that we need to come to terms with the fact that all through the New Testament, Scripture commends, commends people who take bold, courageous steps of faith when it comes to their finances. Over and over again, Scripture will commend, will congratulate, will hold up as an example those who in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of financial chaos and stress, will take bold, courageous Steps because they know that God controls all things, that He is sovereign, and that He is in control, that He can be trusted. You don't look convinced. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mark 12, 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus commends bold, courageous 
acts of financial investment. And I think the reason he just loves this woman so much is because what this does is reveal her heart. And Jesus is always about the heart. And it reveals a heart that trusts in God. What else has she got to trust in now? Nothing but God. Now, if this was in our church today, and there was a poor woman, and we have some poor women in our church, particularly refugees who have come with nothing and don't have much to their names, and if we saw them come forward and say, I'm going to give everything to the church, all of us, with me at the front of the line, would be saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's silly. That's crazy. That's, that's irresponsible. We don't want your money. We're just waiting for some rich people to come and and they can give us what we need. We, we We don't want you to do that. And yet Jesus sees this very thing and commends her. Holds her up as an example for thousands of years to come. Paul does the same, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The context is that there are a bunch of suffering Christians in Jerusalem who don't have anything and the church was known at the time for sharing everything. There's a guy named Barnabas. They called him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. He was just an encouraging guy. He was a Levite, a Jewish priest. And after he became a Christian, he sold a field that he owned and gave everything to the church so that they could share it out. Luke says that the church itself was just selling everything and sharing it amongst one another, blessing one another, seeing to one another's needs. That widows weren't really widows anymore because they had the church to be their husband. It's a beautiful picture. But anyway, this message hasn't really reached the Corinthians. Their hearts are hardened towards generosity and financial giving and and where they excelled in knowledge and theological acumen and in spiritual gifts, Paul says they are lacking in generosity. And the way that he encourages them to increase their giving is by talking about the poor Macedonians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, mark that word. If you've got a Bible, highlight that word. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Extreme poverty, abundant generosity, transcendent joy. If you have grown up in Australia in the last hundred years, which all of you have, then that just doesn't make any sense at all. And if you've come out of a church that preaches that joy and satisfaction will come when you've got a big bank account, then that will be blasphemy. But Paul says the poorest Christians gave the most abundantly and received the most amount of joy as a result. All through the New Testament, the church 
that is giving, even when times are hard, finances are few, are held up as an example to the rest of us for thousands of years to come. So we're in a church right now that is in financial trouble. Like, like, that's not just a rhetorical flourish to get you to give more. Like, this is pretty desperate. And if I know anything after 10 years in ministry, I know that the biggest deterrent to people giving money is not that they don't hear of the need, and not even that they're opposed to giving, but rather that they're afraid of giving. They're, unf- they're, they're afraid of the uncertainty of the future, and so they are afraid of giving of what they have in case they will need it at some point in time in the future. And we have that in, in just uh, woven into the fabric of who we are because we are called quite rightly to be good stewards of our money, and we want to have money as long as we're living, and that's right and good. We want to be able to provide for our families, and that's right and good. But it goes over the edge in 100% of our situations and causes us to fear the future and to hold more tightly to what we have. Fear of the uncertainty of life, fear of the uncertainty of the financial markets causes us to ask the question, will I have enough? If I hear this message and I jump in the deep end and I give generously, will I have enough? We could talk for hours about Jesus' response to that question, but I want to keep going in the text. God won't ask too much. Yeah, another positive way of saying that is you can't outgive God. You can never pour in so much that, he, he, that he's not going to have enough to pour back. And I'm not talking about giving $10 so you get 100 back in the mail this week. I went to a church once where that was the uh, practical application, and that's satanic. But God will meet our needs. God can and God will meet our needs. Not our greeds, but he will meet our needs. So Solomon says, don't let uncertainty, don't let the uncertainty of life, which is true, life is uncertain, life is unpredictable, no one's guaranteed of making it to bedtime tonight. No one's guaranteed of retiring with enough to live on. But don't let that uncertainty make you doubt God's goodness and his ability to meet your needs. Make bold and courageous investments in things that matter in the kingdom of God. I'm just getting warmed up to preach and I've run out of time. So let me say this. I want to finish with a personal example and this is dangerous because we're talking about money and about to talk about me and, and by virtue of the fact that we're talking about money, you're already defensive against me and likely to want an excuse to dismiss me. All right. So now that I've just said all of that, let me just tell you something And this is by way of example, personal experience, not by way of, I wish everyone could be like me, all right? We clear on that? So I'm coming up to nine years married to Renee. It'll be March, we'll be nine years married. So about this time, nine years ago, I was on the beach with her somewhere north of Newcastle in New South Wales. We had friends who had a house there and we were staying with them. We were both in university at the time. We just got engaged and we knew we were going to be married in March. And, and we were sitting on this beach early in the morning and we had the Bible out and we were reading through Luke's gospel together. 
And we got to Luke chapter 12 to 14, and it just blew our minds, and it cut our hearts, like more than anything else that I've experienced. Sitting on the beach, reading through these scriptures, it, it just hit us like a, like a wrecking ball and wrecked our hearts. I just want to read you one of those passages that we read that affected us massively, and if God is gracious, it'll do the same for you right now. Luke 12, 13 to 21. I don't think this is on the screen, sorry, but I'll read it for you. Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. Now listen to this. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. Imagine God saying that to you. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We read that and it just blew us apart. And we made a commitment to one another and to God that day that we would not allow ourselves bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns. That while there was need in the world, whether a need in church or a need in, in, in the nations, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to accumulate more than we... I was going to say more than we needed. We already have more than we needed. But you know what I mean. That it made us tremble to think of God looking at us and saying, you fool. And so that, that morning we committed to each other a few things and we said, what, for, for our engagement party, what, instead of having um, presents, why don't we put a tier catalogue in, in all of the invitations and we'll send them out and people can buy goats and, 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 and seeds and school supplies and water for people in the world who have need. And so we did that and some people got really annoyed that we did that. People said to us, you know, you, not, you, have, you guys haven't lived out of home, you've got nothing, you're both in university, you've got no money, you don't come from wealthy families, no one's going to pay for this for you, why don't you just take what people can give you? It's like an offence. Some people just refused to do it and just gave us stuff anyway. But everyone look right, right at my face right now. Listen, we have never missed those seven platters. We have never wanted for anything that we couldn't get for ourselves. And I'll tell you this, and this is absolute fact. In nine years of marriage, we have not had a single argument about money. Not one. We've had all kinds of arguments about other stuff, right? 
Okay, you have plenty of those, not one about money. What's the single highest cause of discord in marriages? What's the single highest cause of divorce? Money. And you hear those statistics and you think, oh, it must be because they don't have enough, they don't have enough so they're stressed and they, they argue about it because of that. No, it's not because of that. So I just want, I, I don't know, I just want to encourage you. Our situation is uh, one very much like yours for many of you. We're committed to having kids. We're committed to Renee staying home and raising those kids. I don't make a lot of money. It turns out I got into this just as a get-rich-quick scheme. And it turns out working in church doesn't get you heaps of money. Um, but I'm here now. And, um, and our testimony is that God has met every one of our needs. God has met every one of our needs. And not only has he met our needs, but he has... So, and this is the most important thing, he has so worked on our hearts that we're no longer craving for those things that we couldn't afford anyway. I grew up with my walls plastered with cars, posters of cars, and dreaming every day when I'd have enough money to buy one of those cars, and God has just taken that desire from me. I get to drive around in a 1990s Corolla with no back seats, right, that someone gave me, and I'm content with that. That's a work of the Spirit of God. That's a work of the Spirit of God changing my heart from one of covetousness to contentment. So I just, I just say this by way of example, and I say it by way of encouragement. All right, so let me just pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Linda and Pete to come up and say a few words for us. Father, we really do need your help in this. Our hearts are so prone to grab hold of our things, our treasures, our trinkets, and to, and to keep them for ourselves. We are wired to build bigger barns. That's what we do. And every advertising message reinforces that. It's hard for us to swim against a stream. But your spirit will make us able. I thank you for the work that you've done in my heart. Lord, I'm still covetous. I'm still greedy. I still have more than what I need and I indulge in what I want. I love shiny things and new things. But your spirit is at work to make me more like Jesus. I pray that you would do the same for us as we cooperate with you. As we take steps to let go of these things that we hold to so tightly, Lord, please help us to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. In Jesus' name, amen.